Well, welcome. Today we are starting a series leading up to Easter talking about the Passion Week, starting with Palm Sunday, like that was just talking about. But first, I want to welcome all our campuses joining with us today. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I love Marvel movies. Anybody else Marvel fan? Few? Okay. I don't know why I love Marvel movies. They're all the same movie with different characters, right? I mean, let's be honest, you know, like evil, the evil uh, guy rises up or a woman rises up and, and, and tries to destroy humanity. And there's this superhero, this very unlikely, humble superhero that comes up and tries to fight against evil, but it seems like evil overcomes and, and kills or almost kills that superhero. And then somehow the superhero almost like rises again, comes back from the dead to conquer evil and to save humanity. It's the story told over and over by Marvel, but it's not new to Marvel. It's actually the hero's journey told throughout literature for all history. But really, all these hero stories are a shadow of God's superhero story. And if you think about it, the story of Jesus is the story of the ultimate superhero. All the other stories are myths. This one's true. All the other stories point toward the real thing. They're the shadow. This is the real one. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at the culmination of the superhero's story, the week that changed the world. You know, when we think about uh, passion, we think about enthusiasm, excitement, uh, commitment, right? Like I'm passionate about soccer. Now it's really funny. I cannot seriously make myself run down the block and back. I can't. But put a stupid little ball in front of me in a game called soccer, I will run for two hours until I'm drenched with sweat, and I'll do it three times a week. And I still can't make myself run down the block and back. But it's because I'm passionate about this game, this sport called soccer. And that's how we use the word passion many times, but that's not genuine passion. You know, Webster defines passion as this, the sufferings of Christ between the night of the Last Supper and his death. It's what happened that last week. See, genuine passion comes from what we care about so much we would give everything for it. When you think about it like that, you know, I'm not that passionate about soccer. You know, passion is what would you lay down your life for? What would you die for? And, uh, you know, I've sometimes felt like I was going to die for soccer, but not willingly. <laughs> it's just the age thing, I think. But have you ever thought about that question? What are you passionate about? Passionate enough to lay anything down, your time, your money, everything, or nothing? What are you passionate about? Well, we're going to look at this, this week where God claims he demonstrated his passion for you and, and for me and for every person by sending his son who laid down his life for us. And that's why it's called Passion Week. It's the week that changed everything. And today I want to tell you about the beginning of that week because it started with this, this great celebration. But as I tell you the story, I want you to think about what am I passionate about? And, and, and what's worthy of my passion? All right, so you ready? Movement one. Movement one in the story, Jesus comes to Jerusalem. 
So it's been three and a half years since Jesus began his ministry. And, he, and he's been going all throughout Judea and, and uh, Samaria and, and Galilee. It's about 32 AD. And the Roman oppressors are ruling over Israel. And they're using the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious oligarchs of that day, kind of as their puppets to keep the Jewish people uh, under, under control. The Jewish people had long been awaiting a king called the Messiah who would be their deliverer, their savior. For 1,500 years, the Jewish prophets had foretold this king of kings that would save Israel. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and he starts healing the sick, the disabled, even the blind, stories start to spread all throughout Israel. He's feeding tens of thousands of people miraculously. He's teaching with authority, but also with compassion. He actually cares about people that the religious cast out, the drunks, the prostitutes, the, the corporate criminals, the immoral, and the religious leaders complain. He's immoral because he welcomes sinful people. But Jesus had compassion for all people, people who had done wrong. And he even claimed to forgive sin, which the religious leaders were like, who does he think he is, God? Only God can forgive sin, but he claimed he could. So they called it blasphemy, and yet all of Israel was flocking to him. And in that last week especially, he gives us pictures of the heart God has for all people. It wasn't too long ago, um, going through... Uh, the attic, I found some old scrapbooks from high school and college. And, and when my kids saw them, they just, they, they laughed, especially the short shorts and the big hair of the 80s on everyone, including their dad. And we went through laughing at the pictures. But you know, every picture also had a story behind it. And through the pictures, I was able to tell them the stories and they, they, they got to learn about their dad a little bit more. And what we see through Jesus are pictures of the heart of God. We get to learn about the heart of God the Father through Jesus in this last week. So Jesus' popularity is rising, and that's becoming a threat to the religious leaders, to their power and political standing. Jesus decides after three and a half years, he's going up to the Passover celebration in Jerusalem, and his disciples warn him, the Pharisees are looking to arrest you, maybe even kill you. Jesus took his 12 aside, and he told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. And remember, I've told you, Son of Man was the term Daniel used hundreds of years before for the coming Messiah. It was Jesus' favorite term for himself. And he, the Son of Man, Jesus, will be delivered over to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Why? I mean, it had been foretold by the prophets. It was right there in their scriptures. Well, because, I mean, the disciples, just like people today, they don't really take a lot of time to dive into God's word to see what he says, right? Just busy, busy trying to survive, busy trying to get by, busy trying to be passionate about what I'm planning. And that's all of us. And yet here in Jesus last week, we get a picture of God's heart, even for people like me and you who misplace our passions. Well, Jesus is on his way up to Jerusalem, 
but he travels through Jericho and he gives us other pictures of God's heart. He heals a blind man. He sees this tax collector, Zacchaeus. He's like a little mobster, a little gangster. Everybody hates him because he's robbed people blind in Jericho. And yet Jesus goes and stays at his house. Jer- uh, Zachary- Zacchaeus comes to faith in Jesus and ple- pledges, I'm going to pay back everyone I've robbed double. And Jesus says, this is it. This is a picture of the heart of God. He said, this is why I came. I came to seek and to restore, to save what has been lost to God. Zacchaeus had been lost from God, but now he's restored. We get pictures of the heart of God in this last week. He's healing the hurting. He's forgiving and restoring relationship even to the immoral, the broken, the fallen. You know, have you been passionate about the wrong things? Do you realize God is still passionate about you? That passion has never wavered. Maybe it's time to trade our passions. Well, Jesus hears about Lazarus, his good friend, who is sick and dying. Lazarus lives in Bethany with Mary and Martha. Bethany is right over the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. And Jesus should have just gone up to Bethany, and instead he waits. He delays for four days until Lazarus dies. It's very confusing. And then he goes up to Bethany and heals Lazarus. He raises him from the dead. And and news spreads like wildfire across Jerusalem and, and Bethany and that whole region. He must be the Messiah, the King of Kings promised to us. Jesus is coming to save us, to overthrow our Roman oppressors, to finally bring us justice that we deserve. That's what they were thinking. Momentum is building strongly. And so the religious leaders panic. John 11 records, the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, the high council. If we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. You see what they were passionate about. You know, our our homeland, our, our stuff, our power, our plans. And, and here's the thing. You know, if there's anything we are more passionate about than God, ultimately, we will be called on to worship that and to kill God out of our lives. If there's anything that we are more passionate about than God, it will be tested. It will. And because you can't have two number ones in your life. And ultimately, you'll be forced to choose. And it'll try to get you to kill God, to just push him out of your life. But let's be people who are as passionate about God as he was about us that Passion Week. So at the end of the first movement of this hero's journey, Jesus is, is going from Jericho uh, back up to Bethany where Lazarus lived. It's just over the Mount of Olives of Jerusalem. The whole town, the whole city of Jerusalem is going crazy with talk of this coming king, but the tension is set for a great showdown. Movement two, the triumphal entry of the king. So Jesus comes to Bethany just over the hill from Jerusalem, and he tells his disciples, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden, untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, 
Why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. So there's a donkey's colt, you know, a young, a young donkey. They, they put their cloaks on this donkey. Jesus gets up on, on the donkey, and he begins riding down the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem and toward the temple. Word gets out. Jesus is going to the temple. People flock from Jerusalem. They come up from the Jerusalem down from Bethany. Is this the day the king is going to call down angels to strike down our Roman oppressors? They still don't understand what Jesus meant. Because people had asked him, when is God's kingdom coming? And he said, Luke 17, the kingdom of God can't be detected with visible signs. You won't be able to say, here it is, or it's over there, for the kingdom of God is already among you. Or in other translations, the kingdom of God is within you. See, God's kingdom rules wherever people put God first, wherever God is their first passion. And some people had, and others hadn't. But Jesus' kingdom is first a spiritual kingdom. It conquers the world not by force, like we see our kings of the world brutally doing all the time, even now, right? That's the way of the world. That's the way of the world's kings. But his kingdom comes by winning the love and the loyalty, the passion of you and me by being so passionate about us, he would die for us. And that's what changes the world. So Jesus comes riding in on a donkey. But that's what Malachi the prophet, what God had foretold 400 years before this day, before this Palm Sunday. Malachi says this, Malachi 3. Look, I'm sending my messenger. This is God speaking through Malachi. And he will prepare the way before me. The messenger was John the Baptist who prepared the way before Jesus. And then the Lord, the Yahweh you were seeking, will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant who, you look, who you're looking for is surely coming, says the Lord. And here comes King Jesus riding down the Mount of Olives toward his temple on a donkey. Fascinating. Zechariah the prophet in 520 BC had said this, Shout in triumph, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and victorious, yet he's humble. He's humble. He's riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And then it goes on, but here's something you need to know about prophecy. Sometimes God gives prophecy, and between two sentences are hundreds of years or even thousands of years. And so then he says, but there's a big prophetic timeline compressed here. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel, the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle. Your king will bring peace to all the nations. So you can't blame them really for misunderstanding a little bit, even though it was all written out. But they wanted this deliverance right then, and so that's what they were expecting. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt, Is he going to overthrow our oppressors? But this is a picture of God's upside-down kingdom, right? I mean, the Romans would come prancing in on their stallions, and they would demand obedience. They made people be loyal. You bow down or you die. It's the way of the world. And yet, God comes 
not forcing obedience or demanding loyalty, but humble. The most powerful is the most humble. And that's how he overcomes evil. One human heart at a time realizing that God is passionate for them. And so they want to be passionate about God more than anything else because God laid down his life. What more can you do? And here's the thing, you guys. Do you realize if you were the only one, God would still do it for you? He would send Jesus to demonstrate by laying down his life for you because you are his unique son, his unique daughter. There's no other like you that he created for himself, for a unique relationship. So people are lining the streets because they they realize the king is coming. They lay down their cloaks in the road. They cut palm branches and lay them down before the king because this is the way they celebrated kings coming back from battle. They'd have a ticker tape parade. And the ticker tape parade is they would lay down their cloaks in the road. They would lay down palm branches celebrating the the victorious king coming. And this is what they're doing. They're proclaiming, Jesus, you are our king. We want you to be our king. And, And the reason we call it Palm Sunday, right, which is actually next week, right? But I decided to talk about it and celebrate it. Hence, see my palms? It's like a bad dad joke, granddad joke. I'm going to own it. But Palm Sunday was when they laid these palms down, celebrating Jesus as king. And Luke tells us this, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples, this is way beyond the 12, this is hundreds and hundreds, began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting the Old Testament prophets. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, today the stones will cry out. Now this is interesting, because until now, if someone had publicly tried to say, Jesus, you're the Messiah, he would do something strange. Like, Like this. He healed the sick, among them, but he warned them not to reveal who he was. And, and we see throughout the, the New Testament, he did this often. They'd say, you're the Messiah. Yes. Then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. All right, that's weird. Why? Why would he do this? And then why today, as he rides in on a donkey to Jerusalem, and they rebuke him saying, this is blasphemy. You're receiving worship. And he says, if I stop the people, the rocks will cry out. Why today? Well, because Jesus knew where he lived. He knew he lives and we live behind enemy lines. And when he came out publicly, it was only a week before we killed him off. Because there is an evil impetus in this world. See, here's what we got to understand, friends. We live in a world that is not ruled by God or his kingdom. We keep blaming God for all the bad things, but we don't understand who's really underneath it all. What's really underneath it all? We live in a world where the kingdoms of this world, and and again, world meaning like this world system, and there is an, an underlying evil 
current pushing things forward if we're not careful. And that world system's opposed to God. It's opposed to Jesus. Why do you think you and I are so tempted to be ashamed of Jesus? Why do you think the pressure is to hide your faith, to deny Jesus? Why do we use Jesus' name in our society only as a cuss word? You hear Jesus' name a lot, don't you? Right? You know, here's something fascinating. I have traveled to 30 countries. I have never heard, and I bet you've never heard, another religious figure's name used as a cuss word. You ever heard Muhammad's name sworn like a cuss word? Siddhartha Buddha, Confucius? No. Jesus Christ, all the time, all over the world. Why? Well, Jesus actually told us that last week. He said, this is my command. Love each other. Love each other. If the world hates you, remember, it hated me first. It hated me first. Jesus said, the world and its ways, the underlying evil current of the world goes away from God in his loving ways. We're behind enemy lines. And that's why we need to decide what's worth my passion. What's worth, what's worth me giving my heart to? Because here's the thing. If you don't decide, it'll be decided for you. The social media pressure, the world's pressure, it will, decide, it will push you and squeeze you until you decide against God and for whatever that is. What is worth my passion? If not the one who was so passionate about you and me that he did all this. Well, movement three, signs in our times. Jesus comes riding down the hill. There's this great celebration. People are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means God save us. They're crying out, deliver us. He's riding down the Mount of Olives and then he stops. He sees something. I've been down the Mount of Olives and you come, you come down this narrow kind of winding street and then you, you hit this, this picture. And um, it's a picture where you stop and you look out over the city of Jerusalem and, and Jesus sees this and he gets off the donkey and he's overcome by sorrow and sadness. And where you see the, the mosque right there, the Muslim mosque used to be the, the, the glorious Jerusalem temple. The temple where they would worship God, where they would sacrifice every year to admit and pay for their sins of the previous year. And Jesus said the sacrifices can, I mean, God said the sacrifices can only be done in that temple. And guess what? As we'll see next week, that temple is no more. So all those sacrifices stopped. Hold on to that thought. So Jesus sees this and he sees the temple and he sees the city. As Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. He wept. Why? Because he knew these, the people that are many that are crawl, calling him king right now, when he doesn't do what they want, they're going to turn and say, crucify him. And he looks out over Jerusalem. As Jesus approached Jerusalem, he wept over the city and said this, if you even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now your enemies will not leave one stone on another.
because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Couldn't be more clear. God was coming to them to bring them peace. He comes to us to bring us peace. He wants to put joy in our souls, forgiveness, restored relationship with God, no matter what we've done. And he does all that so that we will trust God, so that we'll put God and God's ways first. We'll follow God's ways of love, not force and coercion and hatred. And then God can heal us and bring peace to our lives and then life by life to others' lives. That's how God changes the world. But Jesus knew many that were shouting, yay, go king, would turn and demand his crucifixion. And here's the thing, friends, is when we push God out of our lives, what, what he's saying here to the people of Jerusalem, when we push God out, God gives us what we think we want. And when God stays out of our lives, all that's left is the evil world crushing in, crashing in. But as soon as we turn to God, God rescues us. He's always like that. But this is why Jesus foretells what's going to happen in history and, and even in our day. They're going to reject God's coming to them. Jesus says, okay, God's going to give you what you want. He's not going to intervene, but your enemies are going to come and not leave one stone on another. And later that week, Jesus talks more about the Jewish people and he predicts not only what's going to happen to them, but what's happening in our day today. Pay attention. In Luke chapter 21, that same week, Jesus says, they, talking about Jerusalem and the Jewish people, will fall by the sword and be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, until the times of the Gentiles, hold that phrase, is fulfilled. So Jesus reiterates, Jerusalem and the temple is going to be wiped out, but not only that, the Jewish people are going to be scattered among the nations. They're going to have no homeland until this time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Okay, here's what you have to understand. The prophets of old before Jesus had already foretold this event and all that was going to happen. They had already told, and I've done many messages on it, the Messiah is going to come, he's going to be killed, the, the Jewish people are going to be scattered as well. But then a miraculous event that was also foretold by those prophets and here by Jesus happened in our generation. 1948, Isaiah writes this, God foretells it. 680 years before Jesus came, okay? Proof positive this is written before Jesus came. Isaiah 11. In that day, okay? And he's talking about the, the last days. In that day, the root of Jesse. Jesse was King David's father. So Jesse to David and the Messiah was gonna come through the root of, of, of David. So the root of Jesse, the Messiah, will stand as a banner or a sign for all the peoples. The nations will rally to him. Think about that. How did Isaiah, 600 years before Jesus came, know that today nations would rally to Jesus? They do, all over the world. And his place of rest, Jerusalem, where he was buried, will be glorious. It is. It's, it's rebuilt. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time, okay? Now, 
when Isaiah wrote this, the Jewish people were about to be scattered the first time, happened in the 500s BC, and then regathered, happened in the 400s BC. But he says a second time, before the first time, he says a second time, God will gather the exiles of Israel. He'll assemble the scattered people of Judah, the Jews, from the four quarters of the earth. Okay, so think about this. Isaiah says it. Jesus says they're going to be scattered until this time of the Gentiles is over. In 70 AD, 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion, the the Roman emperor um, sends... Uh, sends troops in. They wipe out Jerusalem, destroy the temple. The temple has not been rebuilt to this day, as you can see. There's a mosque in its place. So it can't be rebuilt yet. It will be, but not yet. But what we see here is the Jewish people have been scattered all over the earth. That happened in 70 AD, and then it happened. Right as evil tries to wipe out the Jewish people with what we call the Holocaust, suddenly, right before 1948, Russian Jews, Ethiopian Jews, American Jews, European Jews, who had been exiled for 1,900 years with no country, no president, no government. Has that ever happened in world history? Has there ever been a people, remain a people with nothing for 2,000 years, and then suddenly... In 1948, overnight, a nation is born. They come back, just as Jesus said they would be scattered. They come back, and their nation is reborn overnight, as Isaiah foretold. Isaiah 66, 680 years before Jesus. Can a country be born in a day? A nation be brought forth in a moment? No, never happened. Yet no sooner is Zion in labor then she gives birth to her children. The Zion is the, the Jewish people. And they will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem. It happened in 1948. Jesus said they'd be scattered for the time until the time of the Gentiles is over. Here's what you got to understand. This isn't mythology. This isn't mythology and this is not religion. Religion is our attempt to reach God This is God's superhero story of sending Jesus to reach us. So when is this time of the Gentiles over? Well, I don't know. You know, it's interesting. If time of the Gentiles meant the time that Israel was ruled by non-Jewish people, well, then it's over. That was 1948. But it seems to also be the time of the church when it's spoken about in scripture. In other words, it's the time when God is not just doing something with the Jewish people, but like he said, for all nations, and he's gathering people from all nations to be part of his family. And if that's the time of the Gentiles, you know, then it seems to still be going on. But it might not last much longer. Now, let me just say, you know, I've never been an end times kind of guy. You know, like, oh, look, Russia's invading. That's Magog of Gog, that means, you know, we're, we're almost there. I, I have no idea, you know, really. I have no idea. But I do see a couple of things that I think are worth noting. You know, 1948, Israel's rebirth after 1,900 years 
as, as Jesus and Isaiah and many prophets foretold is a major sign. And then there was something else Jesus said that last week, that Passion Week. So it says this in uh, Matthew 24, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, when will this happen? He's, he's talking about the, the end. He says, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Okay, what, 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 when will it happen? And Jesus goes on and he says this. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. Now here's the thing, the fig tree, and I don't have time to show it to you, but the fig tree is, is used as a symbol of Israel, okay? So he says, learn this lesson from the fig tree. When the twigs get tender and the leaves come out, when spring happens, you know summer is near. Now, could that mean when the fig tree Israel blossoms again, rebirth after almost 2,000 years, just as I foretold it, you know that summer is near. Even so, he says, when you see all these things, and if that could be the rebirth of Israel, you know that it's near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. I used to read this and go, well, wait, Jesus, that generation did pass away. So what, what are you talking about? Unless he meant when Israel is reborn, that generation won't pass away until all these things have happened. Does this mean that the fig tree is Israel's rebirth and this generation is ours? I don't know. What, what does generation mean? Is it 70 years? Well, that would give us about six left. <laughs> Uh-oh, buckle up your seatbelt. But maybe generation means everyone who was alive in 1948. Maybe that's 100 years. I don't know. Maybe this is one of those, there's a thousand years between sentences and that's not it at all. Here's what I do know. What I know is Jesus is the true superhero. There is no other. And Jesus is the Lord of all history. And this is not myth. This is history, his story. God came to rescue us, not just in this room. Every person that you live and work with, he loves equally. He came to rescue us from an evil world, to save us from what tends to happen. And he's so passionate about you and me and every person that he would lay down his life for us. So let's live passionately for God. Let's not be ashamed to tell people about how passionate God is about them. Let's not, let's not stop at evil's social media pressure on us, trying to make us deny the one who loves everybody the most and keep us all pushed away from the very source of love and life. So friends, let's be as passionate about God as God is about us. And you know, this is a great week to do that. You know, um, the next couple of weeks, Easter, Easter's a great time to invite people. You know, we're gonna, we're gonna make it easy for people even who are just exploring faith. Invite your friends, your coworkers, invite them to come celebrate Easter. You know, especially people from other countries, when they're invited to one of your special celebrations, it's an honor for them. 
They'd love to learn about our special celebrations. Invite them. Great opportunity. Another great opportunity tomorrow, this Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, The Case for Heaven. It's a movie that's going to be playing only these three days all across Austin. And it's Lee Strobel, who was a Yale-trained lawyer, editor of the Chicago Tribune, is going to be looking at evidence that there really is this heaven and this God of heaven. I have nothing to do with the movie. I was an expert in it, but he, he interviews many experts. It's a great opportunity. Invite your neighbors and your friends. And then just go have coffee afterwards and say, what did you think? It's a chance to tell people about the God who is real and is passionate about them. Well, I'm going to hand it over to the campus pastors now. And here at North, as we hear this song, I want you to think about this. What and who is worthy of my passion.